Well, we finished up a series uh, last week on how to love your church, and we're changing directions this week. This will be a month and a Sunday, because we lost one to a, because of a snow day. This will be a month and a Sunday where we talk about things in our lives that we need help dealing with. How do I cope with, insert your situation there, how do I cope with anxiety? How do I cope with loneliness? How do I deal with disappointment? How do I, how do I handle ambition? How do, we, how do I deal with these things that can often cripple and can uh, make it so that my walk with Christ is not as strong and as vibrant as I would desire for it to be? And our hope is that these will not only encourage you, but will also give you some ways of talking to other people about the things that they experience and go through in life. So today, uh, we're going to talk about disappointment. How do I deal with disappointment? And if you go to our little uh, app on your phone, or if you open a browser and go to crcc.info, you can get to the uh, message notes through there. And you can follow along with us in those notes. And you can find those either by clicking on the uh, card that talks about this Sunday, or if you swipe to the end, I think the message notes are there as well. How do we deal with disappointment? Let me read you uh, one little quote here that I want you to um, remember today. We'll say it at the end, but I want to begin with it. Philip Yancey wrote a book called disappointment with God, how to handle disappointment with God. And in the course of that book, as he's talking about it, he says these things. He says, not until history has run its course will we understand how all things work together for good. Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. That's a great, great line. Faith is believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse when we see it from that perspective. Well, the passage that Fiona read for us in Timothy, in the second letter of Timothy, this is Paul's last letter. This is a letter written by Paul from prison. He is awaiting what will eventually be his execution winter is coming on <clears throat> it's getting cold in fact he asked that timothy will bring the cloak that he had left because it's getting cold and he he needs a jacket a cloak for some for some warmth sitting there in a unpleasant prison cell waiting and longing for people to come and be with him. You can hear in the passage his loneliness, his, his desire to be with other believers. But as he says, only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Paul, in this letter, expresses some great opportunities for disappointment. He says at one point that Demas having loved this world, has deserted me. Demas had been a co-worker, a co-laborer with Paul. 
He's mentioned in a couple of other letters. But he says, he has forsaken me, having loved this present world. He's already sent Crescens and Titus to different places on ministry assignments, so those co-workers are gone. Luke is there with him, and he's still stinging from something that a man by the name of Alexander did to him. Alexander the coppersmith, he said, did me great harm. And he's still obviously stinging from that to mention it in this letter. And, and then he says, when I, when I had my first defense, when I first stood at trial, I had hoped that some of the other believers would come and would be with me and be there as support and encouragement. I, I've poured my life into these people. I brought the gospel to these people. Surely, when I stand, I will not stand alone. I'll be able to look around and see some faces that are smiling. But as he says here in the letter at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. All deserted me. In prison, cold, aging, facing what he knows will be ultimately the end of his life. Writing his last letter alone in that cell to his beloved Timothy, Luke being a faithful secretary for him. Demas has deserted me. Alexander the coppersmith, he really hurt me. He really hurt me. And all these people that I've poured my life into, not one smiling face at my trial. Paul expected things. He expected that Demas would be a co-worker he could count on. He expected that the believers he'd poured his life into would stand by him. He expected that he could finish his ministry and his life without a, a late-in-the-game attack that would do him great harm. He was disappointed with false co-workers. He was disappointed with unfair circumstances. He was disappointed with fearful and unreliable friends. Paul had great opportunity for disappointment to do damage to him. The word disappointment comes from a, a, an old uh, French word for disappoint, which at that time simply meant to remove from office. Disappoint, what you've been appointed to, you've been appointed to an office, now someone dissed you and you're gone from that, uh, from that office and you're not in that office anymore. You've been disappointed, only only later did it come to mean the frustration, frustrated expectations, or frustrated desires. And we're all familiar with the word, aren't we? We all are. We come to expect a plan will turn out well, that a, that a marriage will be happy, that children will be healthy, that hard work will be rewarded and promises made by family and friends or lovers will be kept. 
A secondary meaning of the word disappoint is to fail to keep an appointment. To fail to keep an appointment. I expected you, insert your expectation here, I expected you and you didn't show up. You didn't keep your appointment with my expectations. Life hasn't kept its appointment with my happiness. Disappointments, especially deep ones, they can bring out the worst in us, can't they? They can bring out great sadness all the way to great anger and bitterness when we face disappointments, when life doesn't keep its appointments with our happiness. And if we're honest, a lot of our disappointments ultimately end up being disappointed in God. Disappointed in God because He didn't deliver on my expectations. The whole televangelism world is built on building expectations in people for what you deserve now, for what you are worth now, for what you should get now. It's, it's built on creating these expectations. And then when those expectations are not met, what do we do? How do we handle it? We may drift into self-pity, or we may start looking for who we can blame. And often, we feel sorry for ourselves, and we blame God for our disappointments. The psalmist David, he gives voice to many of the thoughts that we often have in our heads. Psalm 22, 1 through 2. I know this is a messianic psalm and that it's the words that were said from Jesus at the cross, but they were also said by David in a real-life situation in which he was feeling this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Have you ever been close to that kind of prayer? That kind of feeling about life? And what's interesting is that later in the psalm, he takes an entirely different tone. Later in the psalm, in verses 22 through 24, he says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, for He has not despised us or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. What happened between verse 1 and 2 and those verses? What happened between I cry all the day and you do not listen and I cry all the night and I find no rest? What, 
What happened that that guy's now going, woohoo, praise God? What transpired? Well, it's a common thing that you find in more than just that psalm. You find David so frustrated, so disappointed. You've heard me say before, I love the psalms. I absolutely love the psalms. And one of the top reasons I love the psalms is because they they tell me I'm not an oddball, that I'm normal, that some of the things that I think and some of the things that I feel are not the, the works of some horrible, somehow stunted and immature Christian, but they're the words of a man here after God's own heart. A man who knew something of God's presence and power and provision. Those words are coming from his mouth. And those words have come from my mouth. David often has a psalm where he begins in despair, but then he works his way into worship. He works his way into praise. How does does that happen? How does David readjust his view? Well, I want to point you to Psalm 111, verse 10, another Psalm of David, where the Scriptures tell us something about a way of looking at life. And Psalm 111, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom and all those who practice it have two things they have a good understanding in other words they have a better viewpoint they have a clearer picture they're looking at things from a different perspective when a person fears the Lord they understand that life begins and ends with God that he is the creator and I am the Creature, that he is the one who knows all things and I know practically nothing. He's the one who sees the end from the beginning and I'm just trying to see the next step in front of me on the path. He is a great and omniscient God. He is a God who knows me so well and knows every aspect of my life and your life. And so we begin with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the the reverence and the acknowledgement of what kind of God He is. That He's holy, and He's righteous, that He's good, that He's loving, that He knows all things, and that He is working out all things according to His own purposes. Nothing will ever thwart the purposes of God. And so, to fear the Lord is to have a different lens to look through. Not the lens of self-pity, not the lens of blame, but to look through a lens that says, I want to begin with this viewpoint in whatever situation I find myself in, that God is good, that He can be trusted, and that He knows all things. So we begin with a good understanding a better viewpoint. And then what's the second thing that happens? We experience hope. We experience hope. David says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. 
<laughs> his praise endures forever. In other words, if we want to make sense of life, if we want to gain perspective, if we want to have hope, we have to, to reorient our viewpoint, to change our lens, to stop in the middle of whatever is disappointing and frustrating us and stop, step back and say, wait a minute, let me, I've got a bad lens in front here. I need to change that. And I need to remember that God is good. I need to remember that He is working out His purpose. I need to remember He knows the end from the beginning, that He actually does make all things work together for good, ultimately to those who love Him. I have to begin there. And if we understand, if I understand that God can be trusted, then I'm starting at the right place in dealing with disappointment. That I can trust God. I can trust His motives. I can trust His heart. I can trust His abilities. I can trust His faithfulness. And then I have hope. Why do I have hope? Because His praise endures forever. Well, Jeff, how does, that, how does that give you hope that His praise endures forever? Because it reminds me of this, that everything that causes me heartache and pain and sorrow and aggravation and frustration and deep, deep disappointment, everything like that will not endure forever but his praise will endure forever i know that that which wounds the world and hurts the world and damages our planet and damages people and brings about so much sorrow and death and destruction all of those things will not endure forever but his praise will endure forever why because in that place that we live with him in glory in the ages to come, there is nothing not to praise him for because there is always rejoicing. Always rejoicing. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Oh, how many times? Have you quoted the scripture before? Have you shared the scripture before? Have you ever believed the scripture <laughs> before? Man, it's so easy to quote, but often so easy to put into practice, isn't it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Change your lens. Change the viewpoint. Reframe the situation. Don't trust in your own understanding. Your understanding often will just take you toward feeling sorry for yourself or feeling self-pity or self-hatred, self-loathing, or your understanding can lead you to try to find someone to blame, someplace I can point the finger and make myself feel better because it wasn't my fault. It was that idiot that did it. It was that person who brought this on. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Here's the lens change. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make straight your path. There's the lens change. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make 
straight your paths. He basically says the same thing here. Be not wise in your own eyes. Change the lens. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Self-loathing is a manifestation of the enemy's evil in our lives. Self-loathing, self-hatred, self-pity. These are things that are, that, are, that are truly sinful. Because the scripture tells us that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And self-pity, and self-deprecation, and self-loathing, whatever, those things that drag us down into a place where we don't trust where we don't believe God's goodness, where we question God's character, that is sin. Solomon here is saying, turn away from that. Turn away from sin. Trying to fix the blame on somebody, be angry at somebody else, leads us to sin rather than our trust in God. Just be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Listen. Disappointment can ravage you. And the deeper the disappointment, the greater the chance for that. Disappointment can ravage us, but trusting in the wisdom of God, reorienting, reframing, changing the lens, trusting in the wisdom of God can bring healing and hope and refreshment to our hearts. Philip Yancey in that same book says this, no matter how we rationalize, God will sometimes seem unfair from the perspective of a person trapped in time. That's who we are. We're trapped in this time frame. We're trapped there. And he says, only at the end of time, after we have attained God's level of viewing, seeing things clearly from his viewpoint. God's level of viewing, after every evil has been punished or forgiven, every illness healed, and the entire universe restored, only then will fairness or justice truly reign. And then we will understand what role is played by evil and by the fall and by natural law in an unfair event like the death of a child. Until then, we will not know and can only trust in the God who does know. And He does know. So how can we cope with disappointment? Well, there's some hints in here that Paul gives us in this writing to Timothy. And it comes along this idea of reframing it. So let me show you uh, quickly here four ways that Paul reframed that situation right here that we read about this morning. He says this, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him. Paul, number one, Paul reframed with trust. He reframed with trust. He did not take things into his own hands. He did not feel like he had to manipulate or control or fix the situation. The Lord will repay him. This is true of all kinds 
of disappointments in our trying to fix it or change it or manipulate it instead of giving in to negative emotions in negative thinking or giving in to blaming and anger and hatred rather than giving in to saying, I've got to fix this. What did he do? He left it in God's hands. The Lord will take care of this. He doesn't specify how. He just says, I can trust God. He will take care of this. He will repay him according to his deeds. So Paul chose to reframe his situation with trust that God would take care of the things that were causing him great heartache. Number two, Paul reframed with forgiveness. He reframed with forgiveness. When those people didn't show up at the trial, when they did not stand with him, look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. What is Paul doing? He's saying, I forgive them. I forgive them. These are, these are new Christians. These are new. They're living in a, in a society that's so hostile toward believers. They probably were fearful. They probably were afraid to be associated with me. And if I saw them later, they'd probably be ashamed at the fact that they didn't. Done is done. Don't hold it against them. May it not be charged against them, Lord. It's the same thing, the kind of thing Jesus was saying from the cross. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. That's what Paul's doing here. Forgive them, Lord. They don't understand what they're doing or what it meant to me. And so he chose to trust God, and he chose in this situation to reframe it with forgiveness. He also reframed with perspective. He reframed with perspective. He saw his difficulties as part of God's mission through his life. Look at verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that... You see the connection here? The Lord stood by me. I'm leaving it in His hands. I'm choosing forgiveness. The Lord is standing by me, and He's strengthening me. Why? So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Even in this, he says, God is at work. Even in this, even in this situation with this man that did me great harm, with this person, Demas, who deserted me, with, this, with these people who didn't support me, in all of this and in this life situation, circumstance I find myself in, this miserable place, God is at work. He is at work and He is bringing about His plan through me. And then He says this, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, remember that line. We'll come back to it. But let me just add one more thing here. Paul reframed with hope-based praise. He reframed with hope-based praise. 
praise. The Lord will rescue me, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into. Now, what's he facing? He's alone. He's deserted. He's facing execution. But what is his testimony? The Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a change. Almost similar to David in the beginning of this passage. I hope somebody's going to show up soon. I mean, he says, uh, please come quickly. That's, I think that's translated, hope somebody shows up. Because Demas, that fake co-worker, has abandoned ship. Alexander the coppersmith did a number on me. And all these believers I've been helping and preaching the gospel to, deserted, never showed up to help me in my time of need. And I'm sitting in a prison cell and I'm waiting to die. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Starts off a bit like David. But then how does he end it? I know this. What happens? Changes the lens. Take this lens off, put that lens on, change the lens. He's changed it, how he's looking. And he arrives at this place through forgiveness, through trust, through perspective, through the fear of the Lord, he reminds himself of who he is and what God is doing, has done, and has promised to do through him. And he says, never mind, it's okay, because my God will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, back in verse 17, remember, he says, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. That's a, Paul was not tossed to the lions. This wasn't a Daniel and the lion's den scenario. He's using metaphor. He's using metaphor for an expression for escaping something dangerous. Escaping something that could derail Are you encountering things in life that could derail you? That could damage your faith? That could end up deceiving you? That could end up detaining you from your purpose? That could end up letting anger or bitterness or hatred or self-pity and self-loathing or Are you in danger of being derailed at some point through these disappointments? The scripture says in another place that Satan prowls about like what? Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I don't know that Paul had that idea in mind when he said this, but it fits beautifully. And so he saved me from the mouth of the lion. How do you stay out of the lion's mouth? How do you stay out of getting chomped on by the enemy who would try to 
derail you? How do you make that happen? Well, let me give you just a little bit here from the fighter verse. The fighter verse this week was a continuation, of course, of the other one. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 22. So let me see if I get the whole shoot and match here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 22, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See to it that no one returns evil, no one returns um, evil for evil to anyone, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing in everything or in all circumstances. Give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Great passages. Great encouragement in that. And there's a little section there that I just want to offer to you in closing today that has to do with how to stay out of the lion's mouth. And it's summed up in these words, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, or in every circumstance give thanks. Now, let me just suggest this to you. How do we stay out of the lion's mouth? Reframe, reframe, reframe. To live intentionally, to live an intentional life of Christ requires us to pause. To pause. The discipline of pausing, the discipline of giving ourselves a moment before we react, to take a moment, this is the fruit of self-control, to take a moment to pause before we react, and switch that lens, change that lens. Rejoice always. When I read that, I hear, stay near the cross. Because the root of all my rejoicing is the gospel. The root of all my rejoicing is what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. You've heard me say when I counsel couples sometime that have gone through some level of deep disappointment and damage to their relationship, I will tell the, the spouse who has been sinned against, it's vital that you stay near the cross, that you stay humble before God. Because what's going to happen is your partner's over here, and as you move away and you focus instead on blame and anger and bitterness, and you focus that direction, you're moving away from the place of your own mercy and your own realization that you need mercy and that you and I are just as deserving of hell as the worst person that we know. And so 
my root of rejoicing is I stay near the cross and I remember, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Thanks be to God. Keep me near the cross, Lord. Keep me always rejoicing. Keep me preaching the gospel to myself regularly. Keep me in that place. Rejoice always. Stay near the cross. The more you stay near the cross, the better you'll be able to frame people in a proper way. But the further we get from it, it's dangerous. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Stay open to your Father. You know, when I think about pray without ceasing, this openness, this, this is the idea that is, is in my mind. Pray without ceasing. In other words, live continually referencing life to the Father. And do so in talking with it, about it with Him. Bring everything. Bring everything. Every pain, every hurt, every disappointment, every question, every challenge, every difficulty, every sin, every heartache, every joy, every happiness, every, every, uh, every opportunity. Bring them continually before God. Keep in conversation with your Father. Everything. Continually reference life. This is part of reframing. Continually reference life to the Father and who He is. And then third, give thanks in every circumstance. Stay in the fear of the Lord. You don't know He does. You don't know He does. How can you give thanks in every situation? Because I don't know, but He does. Because I know this, that whatever happens here and whatever happens in this life, his praise will endure forever. And the hurt will not. It will not. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing in every circumstance. Reorient, change the lens, give thanks to God. He knows you don't. As that quote said, faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Not until we have escaped the bondage of the time frame we're stuck in, we would be able to see the great plan of God. The great plan of God. There were people sitting in the place that you're sitting hundreds of years ago that were wondering, why is this happening to me? And you're the answer. You're the answer. How many pieces did God move into place? How many things did he do? How many trials had at the end of them 
another believer a you. And should the Lord wait, maybe another hundred years from now, there'll be somebody wondering, why am I going through this? Or you're sitting here going, why am I going through this? And someday they will be the answer. You don't know. He does. We can trust him.